welcome to the Ideas Untrapped podcast, where we examine the role of ideas in the progress and prosperity of nations. This was an unusual episode, in a way, because there was not the usual question and answer, and I sort of just let Timmy flow with his thoughts. We can then add a bit of context some of the things he's saying. So Timishule runs a gas power company. That's what he does. But he's a historian also. And he's this very interesting guy on Twitter that usually has a lot of smart things to say. Most of what he has written publicly about centers around power. It is not a new problem. And the importance of power to an economy really at this point cannot be overemphasized whether we're talking about productivity or just the general economic activity and growth but it's been a difficult problem for us to solve and depending on who you talk to they have different reasons why it's not working I mean, you remember the $16 billion that Obasanjo yeah, just spent, so <laughs> and we still didn't have power. But so, Timmy has some very interesting thoughts. One distinction that he made that stayed with me was the differentiation between utility and commodity. How the sector is regulated as a utility, whereas it's really a commodity, like something you go to the market and buy pay for. you pay for like it's not really a public good in nigeria the scale of the investment is not there yet the structure of the market is not like that but one thing i'll ask you is from your own experience interaction with power companies why is it such an intractable problem timmy talks about price and a lot of people talk about that. But from my own angle, it seems the government is worried about exposing consumers to some kind of monopoly pricing. So is that really the right approach? Especially in a sector where at this point in time is not really attractive. Uh, well, for me, this the power issue is a very monumental problem to solve. And using government resources to solve it right now might be very difficult. And I think the simplest way that I can think about it is how do you get power to most people? How do you ensure people and businesses have power? And the simplest answer for that should be allowing many suppliers or vendors provide power. And that way you solve the availability problem before you now begin to talk about pricing. At the initial stages, it might be expensive, but... When it gets to a point where people have choices, then price will um, adjust to reflect the choices as, as it becomes available. I'm seeing some kind of pattern. There is always an implicit, or maybe it's explicit, welfareism of sorts in our regulatory approach, which is that we've somehow convinced ourselves at policy level that it is wrong for people to be exposed to market prices for things because 
there are always poor people who will not be able to afford it. I think, and this might be a contrary opinion, but I think inequality at whatever level is a luxurious problem to solve for us. And it should not be what we should be trying to solve. Let's, let's assume we're starting at zero. Everybody has zero access. And then you want to spur growth in an economy. The first thing you should do is which areas will give me maximum return in terms of economic growth. And then you push resources to those areas. Allow businesses have access to power. Allow entrepreneurs build businesses because they are guaranteed that they will have power to be able to do all of this. And all of the regulatory constraints that have been built just to guarantee equal access and equality to government resources and infrastructure and dividends of governance should first be broken now and solve the problem, the initial problem, the growth problem, the infrastructure problem at the at the business level that we engineer growth before you now start to solve the inequality problem. And I think it's just a misplacement of priorities to do that. I think Tini hinted at that. He said something like the equilibrium currently is that rather than highest paying consumer or businesses or anybody really to have power then we should all not have power <laughs> I, I he has a very colorful metaphor for the way power is being regulated that are best expressed in his words so let, let's listen to TV price and the requirements of a non-objective assessment to establish power infrastructure in this country, right? And I understand the point that people make about it's better not to have a regulator than to have the one that we have right now. Yeah, it's nice to have a car, right? But, you know, my office is on the same street that I work on, right? If my car is breaking down every 200 meters, I should just walk. You know, like, the tool is not really fit for purpose and does not work. Not because it can't, not because the internal combustion engine and cars are faulty, but because this particular car is more of a headache than walking. Then let's just walk. And that is the point that I would say that people, I would say like me, who believe that massive deregulation is necessary, it is because the regulator is not fit for purpose. And they really aren't. Even this tariff provision that has come is too little, too late. I said it earlier, right? We're now in the worst of all three worlds, which is, one, the tariffs have been adjusted, but not enough. It's like, kind of, maybe, sort of kept up with ethics, rather than with the returns analysis and what it should do to generate profits in order to attract investment in the system. I say this despite the fact that there have been a few deals that have gone on. AFAM, Transcorp, Symbion, uh, Globalec, so it's not like there's nothing happening, but the attraction and the transformation is not happening nearly rapidly enough to shift the needle to things getting better, right? Because like where you want to be is Vietnam or Thailand, or like the last last, even India or Pakistan. Like like if you told most Nigerians like, oh, we're well behind Pakistan, particularly in the solution of let's say CNG vehicles, supplies of gas gas interventions to provide power within the country, right? People were like, ah, how can you compare Nigeria with Pakistan? It's like, no, we're way worse. It's kind of like a radical religious 
like democracy and then we can't even match them. Where do you want to get to, like Thai or Vietnam levels? And I wrote a piece about this in the FT and I, I, I just graphed it out and it was like, these are the year-on-year growth rates in our power sector that it would require for us to kind of like, they call it escape velocity, break out of the poverty trap through electrification and industrialization. And we're like nowhere near there. We're not even, in my opinion, aiming to be there. Look at the slate of power projects, with the exception of Mandela, which will never happen. Never, never, never. There's no way you could get the ESIA and the Environmental Social Impact Assessments passed through to flood thousands of hectares of the northeast of Nigeria, displacing millions of people. Like, how would you compensate them? Where would they go? Where would they go that would then not cause conflict with another community? Because, like, Nigeria is not an empty country, right? You can't just, even when they build Abuja, they have to displace a local uh, local population who to today have an indigenous or FCT, blah, 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 because they were the people who were there when somebody looked at the map in Lagos and decided that the coup attempt, they didn't like it, so they were going to move the political capital to the middle of the country. And it's exactly, you know, have you ever seen that cartoon of Europeans dividing up the world and dividing up Africa, carving it up? It's like one of these like 19th century cartoons. And it's like Nigerians do that to ourselves now. We are the new colonialists in the way that our rulers treat the country. And I said, you know, that Nigeria is a prison because Nigerian citizenship is not a particular boon. You're just kind of born into this cage. Hopefully, in a sense, your parents have enough money so that you can be born in America so that your cage has an escape route. Or, like, you know, you sit IELTS endlessly so that you can move to somewhere else and have an escape route. I know so many Americans who I title to other citizenships and are like, why would I do that? Brits, Australians, etc. It's like, oh, my grandfather was British, but like, I have an Australian passport, so like, I'm not trying for an escape route or something. I don't know a single Nigerian who's not running for high political office, right? Who would not accept some other passports if you gave it to them. That, in my opinion, is a fundamental indictment of because it implies then that, okay, I'm happy to be here, but I'm not sufficiently invested in whatever we're doing. And with power in particular, they have made almost no progress. Even the deals I talked about, right, are really consolidations. Okay, Global Act, not so much so. That's supposed to be new constructions, I understand it. But everything else is other people buying North-South Power, Northwest, Symbion, etc. It's moving money around. Who is building? The one person I can think of who's really building, I hesitate to even say the name out loud, but it's like somebody in Oniru is building merchant power plants where they are actually just supplying the neighborhood. Technically, you know, like I have my copy of the Electric Power Sector Recovery Act, etc. Technically, what they're doing is illegal. But how and why should it be illegal for someone to safely land they own, build an IPP, like generator, run the wires to the homes, right? And they're not even displacing their power. All they say is, when light goes, you can plug into our system. They don't even have off-take arrangements, they don't have anything. 
And of course, this is an unworkable system, but only works because they're basically just using equity and then now retained earnings for expansion. But they could never go to a bank and get a loan to do that, even though the demand is there. So what is the gap between the demand and the supply? It is actually Nigeria's dysfunctional government. And in this particular instance, the highest example of that is NERC itself and, frankly, the current administration. Explain that a bit. They will not let price signals determine the price of power. Let's say that Nigeria can transmit and distribute about four gigawatts, of, four and a half gigawatts of power at the moment. First of all, scarily enough, because you go to all these conferences and now they're on Zoom, that number has not shifted since 2016. I remember AOECO did these um, concentric circles, almost like a Venn diagram thing. This is what we can generate. 12 gigawatts or something. This is what we can transmit. I'm trying to remember if it's transmit or distribute, but like 7 gigawatts, this is what we can distribute for. But basically, however you run the tube, the narrowest aperture is 4, so that's the maximum you can get, right? Or 4.5, right? That number, 2016 was 5 years ago. We haven't moved the needle. Azura, that's the one thing. But our population grows at almost 3%. And most of those are agriculturalists, right? So we have to be actually really glad that we're not rapidly industrializing because where would the power for that come from? And as you say, you know, remember I was saying, you know, the title of my book is Thrive by Other Means. It's from King Lear. It's like either say thou do it or thrive by other means, which is either, pardon my French, like shit or get off the pot. And that is basically what Nigerian business, Nigerian businessmen, Nigerian bankers, Nigerian telecoms companies, Nigerian tower operators, Nigerian people who live in their house with their better past my neighbor have had to do. Everybody has just had to figure out a solution for themselves, right? I actually think that that would be fine if that was one step on the road to a series of other steps that were taking us towards, frankly, eventual consolidation of the effort. But we are stuck on that step. And I can't even say it's like, this is what I do. I help people navigate that step. I help people understand that these are your most efficient power options. These are the costs. Like I went to a factory in Orile the other day. And it's uh, fast moving consumer goods. They make a soft drink, a very popular soft drink. And it turns out that they were blending NEPA. They are, right? Blending NEPA and the diesel jet. But because it's like a hot filling system, because it's these PET bottles, etc., every time light goes, the conveyor stops. So they have to throw away everything that's on the conveyor belt. They start up the gen, then start the process again. And I was trying to really make the case, because one of the things we do is like energy audit, then I had to like actually expand it to like cost audit, which is like you're not factoring in the cost of all the stuff you have to throw away because you have these power interruptions. So they didn't want to switch because, yes, they know it's it's expensive on the gen, but NEPA is so cheap. And it's like, well, if you factor in your whole costs, including 10,000-hour light bulbs that only ever last 4,000 hours, 
you actually come up with some pretty good incremental savings in addition from, and again, this is self-interested for me, the fact that the switch to gas just costs you less. Like the gas engine is more capital intensive, but you know you save more fuel, etc. I was like, just even think about it from headaches and your own business. Wouldn't you just like to have it that you press the button and it always works? Always. Like, how much headache would that take off your mind? And then you can start thinking about starting another factory. Yeah, if you think about a company like Berkshire Hathaway or like, you know, 3G that make these mega deals, right? In the in Brazil, in the US, etc. One thing they don't think about is where is the power going to come from? Or it's one meeting at the beginning of whatever they're doing, and then it's sorted. It's kind of like building a house. Well, where, where am I buying my doors from? You think about it once. You don't think about your doors every day. And uh, in Nigeria, the head of the largest power operator in Nigeria runs a power company. Sit down and talk to him someday, right? He runs a power company, and he'll tell you this, frankly. He's always assessing where is solar right now, what is the price of diesel, what is the quality of diesel, how can I get my distribution effectively done, who is maintaining my generator, and from whom am I buying the next set. Let me put aside some money into a cash flow waterfall so that I can afford my next set. Am I switching to propane? So I've come with eight things, right? Then he has two fingers left, right, of his ten, to think about actual deployment and construction of, of towers and the maintenance of the actual like signal infrastructure. Yeah. Like talk to anyone. Like you know, if you if you go to let's say Protocol Airport, which I go to a great deal, right? You go to the ATMs there, the power banks and the battery banks next to the UBA ATM if anyone has ever been there, right? Next to the UBA ATM is almost twice the size of the actual ATM machine itself. Whoever runs UBA, right, runs a power company. And my point about it is, that could be the case. If it happened naturally, that would just be what it is. But it has been stymied. The growth of this... Okay, I wouldn't use such an extreme example. Maybe I will. Like, Nigeria's power sector is almost like an abortion. Which I mean, something that would develop naturally and come to fruition with care, with diet, exercise, regulation, maternal love, etc. Right? But you know, nobody like really tries to get involved and say like, oh my child is growing. I'm going to be the one to determine how many kidneys the child has, right? Like there's no intervention really necessary. You are a caretaker, you're a nurturer. You're not God. And they Constant interventions seem to to me to be particularly pernicious and to have stymied this industry to the point where the failed privatization is almost worse than anything else that could have happened because it is now so unattractive. So many people have, like there's a Pavlovian response, right? Mm. Which is, before it was like, oh, Nigeria's power sector is all promise and potential. Now it's like, ugh. I know so many people who lost their shirts in that. We've seen the promise and we don't really Just like, like, we're, like we've seen <laughs> the promise and the promise is punishment. Yeah? Like Fifty Shades of Blackout. Like nobody is... I remember once, like, 
starting with Opeh, and I was like, Nigeria's path. Like, I, I have written all of these catastrophic, the inevitable financial collapse of Nigeria's power sector is, is imminent. You know, I've written all the doom and gloom headlines, and in a funny way, I take no pleasure in having been proved right time and time again. And it's tough to see the way forward right now. There is a political problem, right? Like one of my Twitter adversaries or Beth Noirs, she's always like, oh, you free market people, you free market people. Who, who is that? Okay, it's, it's a lady that I respect a great deal. She has the Africa practice for Eurasia group, Maka Anko. Oh, yeah. And <clears throat> we always have this, and she's like, oh, it can't work, it can't work, it can't work. The solutions that, let's say, people from my ideological side of, of things come from. I'm like, okay, well, is what's happening right now working? Or are you proposing more of what we have right now? You know, it's really difficult, at least in my experience, to see what the alternative proposition to people who are opposed to market-based ideas are really proposing. I really don't know what their pitch is. Yes. Well, people always fall back on politics. Right? It's like a vote loser. Or whatever. I don't understand that. I don't think that anyone has ever voted for or against anyone in Nigeria ever because of electricity prices. I would like to be proven wrong on this mm-hmm. one, but like, and like, you're not running for anything again now, so like, what votes? Right? I'm just saying, I mean, so it does seem to me, as I alluded to, that it comes from like a kind of fiat culture. It comes from a top-down dictatorial culture and a need for control, in my opinion, really, than any, oh, if I voted this way, I would lose this election. You see that in America, right? You know, if you vote against the ACA or for the ACA or, you know, etc., there can be party primary issues, there can be electoral issues. I don't understand why we can't almost, like, like, you've already done your stomach infrastructure, whatever nonsense you're doing. Why, why not just do the right thing? Do you think it's an incentive problem? I, I know we've, I mean, in a previous encounter, we've sort of sparred on this in the past. But I always like to go back and know what you think about the research cost hypothesis. That is basically as long as we have this oil rent in whatever form, taxes on the sector or whatever. There really isn't an incentive for people in power to really buckle down and do the hard stuff. I mean, there should be an incentive because the country is richer, there would be more to steal, just to put it frankly, right? Like, did you see Putin's palace? Yeah, no, uh, oh, I'm just saying. We don't have, like have ambition. But I'm just, <laughs> just saying, I mean, it's like nothing that any Nigerian head of state has stolen. Is like that, right? Mm-hmm. Like if there's more, like if there's more, there's more for you, you know. Like you know, I woke up the other day and I was tweeting something about like it's possible to be smart, corrupt, and advance your country at once. Yeah. And I was just a tweet of frustration. Well, I, it surprised me the traction it had because it was like if there's more, there's more to steal. But then fewer babies die before the age of five. Like I just like I don't understand how your incentives would not be aligned. 
you know, he, he's much maligned for this statement, and I don't think he quite quite said it from the same philosophical point that I would. But yeah, Jonathan, when he was like, corruption is not stealing, he got lampooned for it. His political opposition used it endlessly, right? And it was successful, as you saw, he was unseated, right? But I feel the statement, I don't know, I can't talk about his own state of mind, is actually fundamentally true, which is that corruption is incompetence, not the money you're stealing. So during a global pandemic, I have to go and get an NIN, right? For no reason that makes any sense. Thousands of people have to huddle at small government offices. Like it literally is the antithesis, and there is no objective reason that, first of all, it has to be now, or that, frankly, it has to be done at all. There is no particular urgency, apart from, I guess, the Ministry of Communications isn't doing anything else. Like, what is the rationale behind this? What is the rationale behind not grandfathering existing phone lines in and insisting upon it for new ones that you would slow taper? And eventually, everybody will be forced into it now because, like, at some point, you lose your phone or you need to replace your SIM card and you put up the regulatory barrier there. This not stick and carrot, stick and stick approach, how does it help anyone? Particularly considering the context of the time. I wouldn't even think it made sense in the first place. Because, first of all, I have a tax number, they got state. I have a federal tax number, FIRS, right? I have a driver's license number, I have a passport number, I have a BVN, which is the same thing. That you use for NIM. In America, your social security number is your number, that's your thing. It's not because that's what it was supposed to be. It's because once they had one thing that basically everybody was incentivized to have, like, don't grow old in poverty, get this number, right? They just figured... Or your chair won't come. It's just what I mean. So, like, don't go... Like, and if you want to... And lots of people, diehard Republicans on the FDR, they didn't get it. They didn't want it. They didn't want government assistance, etc. But, like, why not? Everybody has one now, right? It just happened. Whereas, like, the BVN, they forced everyone into that. If you wish to be in the banking system, you need this number. And many, many people got it, Right? It would make more sense to take the BVN holdouts and try and push them into that system than to take everybody, like take the whole, like, it's like you have a few overripe tomatoes in a basket, you know, overripe tomatoes kind of infect, quote unquote, the other ones, so the whole basket can go rotten, right? So you're trying to pick out the overripe ones so they don't go rotten, etc. Is... The idea to pick out the overripe ones or to throw the whole basket into you know into a new sorting thing. Because what? You want a new thing, you want new budgetary allocations, you NIMC must justify its line item in the federal budget. Like what is the rationale behind this? And this is kind of what I always come back to with Nigeria, which is Nigeria is why. What is the rationale for what you're doing that is not either venal corruption or incompetent power madness? Like, is there a third rationale? I know they've come up with security, but again, I still don't understand why you couldn't just use the BVN for that. Well, because terrorists 
I won't get an NIN, but might have a BVN. Is it, what, what additional thing are you capturing in the net? I don't understand it. I mean, if you're worried about kidnappers to access banking services right now, you need a BVN. Yes. And so, so, so the question is, oh, well, to access mobile services, you don't need a BVN. So let's do NIN to access mobile services or telecommunication services. Well, why not just put it to the BVN too, right? First of all, the ability to capture goes from these specific NIMC offices to every bank branch in the country, right? So you've immediately solved that logistical problem, right? So it's not like, where can I find that's near me that can capture my NIN or have a special capturing session somewhere? There's already a process for enrolling people into something, right? It operates with no special expenditure because these branches are open 9 to 5, Monday through Friday anyway, right? And you avoid the crush. And importantly, I would also say even logically, you then tie someone's mobile stuff to their finances. So if you're really looking for people who are committing financial crimes or kidnappers who are collecting ransom and depositing it, isn't it better to have just one number so that like this 11-digit number is to be lost? This is money. This is phone. This is passport renewal, as opposed to a series of numbers just so that you can fund recurrent expenditure at many agencies. Well, the new thing now, which is agencies as a revenue-generating entity. Yes. And you see this a great deal. I had a particularly bad experience where I was supposed to pay a fee late last year to a government agency, and they came back, you know, you know, that you get the, because I was like, oh, we can't pay without an invoice. And then they come back and it's paid in January. You get back to work on the 4th, you pay it because you got it late December. Like, oh no, the fee has been revised up by 75% effective January 1st. And there does seem to be this weird, like, thing amongst a number of government agencies where their KPIs are now about extracting money from the populace. One thing that also came up in my conversation with Timmy is something I would say like the rights-based approach to development. I think that's Nonso's idea, though a lot of other scholars have also expressed that. I know William Easterly is quite big on the economic rights of the poor. I think more fundamentally, the issue around rights centers on what should the law be and of course still referencing the power situation should the government have the right to tell you as a consumer not to buy power from anybody that can provide it to you should the government have the right to tell me not to sell power if i have excess power to sell to a willing buyer like what are the lines where are the boundaries on what government should and should not do what rights do we have as consumers as citizens and all of that if i want to bring in tomatoes from benin why should the government tell me not to do that why can't i compete with someone else that is bringing it from Benue. Especially if we are both citizens of the same country. 
So the issue of economic rights, and I, I remember the episode we did in December where I talked about the concept of economic rights being really alien to us in Nigeria. I mean, I find that every time in my interaction with people, it comes up. People have become so accepting of it. Sometimes you find even businesses welcoming of this incursion on rights because it protects them. But at the end of the day, it is also other citizens of the country, other people who are invested, who lose out because it just encourages government to sell access to the law, to regulation. So the issue of economic rights and rights generally, I've always found it very problematic about our approach to regulation, our approach to how we make laws, even our approach to how the law is interpreted. Okay, so you pass the law that the CBN can regulate the banking sector and of course use its monetary tools to manage the supply of money and maintain price stability. Does that law or that act say that you can restrict my account access to my own for my personal bank accounts because you find my political views problematic? The Nigerian project is almost Kafkaesque because it's about the licenses, not the idea of the regulation, which is the regulation should be in aid of preventing wrong and safety, right? Yeah, externalities, uh, even if, yeah, just like And I guess this is also the part of, you know, if you think about something like the American project, particularly in like the Western states and as they expanded, right? We make a lot of fuss about is the government obeying the regulation, right? So like with CBN, we're always like, at the moment, like, CBN is rogue, right? They are lending more to the government than they are statutorily allowed to. This proposition to borrow money, first of all, they borrowed all of our pensions. I wasn't going to yeah, talk about that. Yeah, without our, our permission, they've already borrowed it. Yeah. So that's all yeah. money that's like... I, I, just, I mean, now they're going after dormant accounts. Then it's like, yeah. hey, it's dormant, but that's still somebody's money now. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. So when they act extra statutory and go beyond the bounds of their authority, there is a kickoff. And people do make a fuss, right? And... They then have to come out and explain themselves as to why it's justified that they're breaking the law, which is an absurd thing, but something that happens frequently in Nigeria, right? What is even starker to me, and the question that I find that we don't ask, is what should be the limits of a law? You know, the Americans are the perfect ones to be like, this tax or this impost or whatever is on the face of it unconstitutional or unacceptable. Like, it was a country studying a tax report. Nobody said that King George didn't have the right to impose, and Parliament didn't have the right to impose those taxes. Didn't have the legal ability to. They said they did not have the fundamental rights to do so. That it was unjust. We don't have that question of unjustness in Nigeria in our public debate. How dare 
the federal government, whether empowered by NUC, who is empowered by the 2005 statute, right? Tell me that in the absence of my not having power in my home, I am enjoined from securing a private businessman to supply it to me. How is such an act constitutional? It's like, let's say they passed the legislation saying you can't breathe without a license. Is that just? Is that permissible? That's the point I'm always trying to kind of drill down to and kind of like get other Nigerians outraged about. Not uh, the statute says this, but the defiance of the statutes and blah, blah. That stuff should be easy and should be able to be taken to court. And it's the belling the cat problem, you know, where if all 26 bank MDs got together and said, you know, F you, Mr. NFLA, we're not blocking people's accounts in contravention of the law, you can't bell the cat, right? If six tried it, right? one or two of them would get squished, but nobody wants to be one of the two who gets squished, right? So everybody's got to fall so in line. there's a divide and conquer thing that gets everybody to fall in line and nobody wants to be the sacrificial goat. But there are other areas where no one even contests that it's NERC's authority to set the prices. NERC has a statutory obligation to act in a certain way, right? They frequently exceed their authority to the manifest detriment of the Nigerian populace. that should it exist? Should there be a single bulk buyer? Because again, we often do these things when we establish these parastatals that are supposed to be kind of incorporated wholly on government companies. Uh, NNPC is the other big one you can think about, right? But they actually act as regulators. Is that what a company should do, first of all? And even then, you have to look at it and say, well, what is the basis for the fundamental basis? Like, let's not get into the NNPC Act or something, but NNPC's back-in rights under the aegis of the federal government, under Obasanjo, when he nationalized all minerals found anywhere within Nigeria or its coast, etc. Well, why did we dispossess the people who owned the land of the minerals underneath their land? What was the rationale for that beyond seeking to empower government revenue? The rationale was, oh, well, the people who own the land are being obstreperous and etc. and like delaying progress for the whole nation. Nope. That's like getting involved in my house. We then did with the land you like, but I have a house. I want to sell it. I'm looking at different buyers, talking to them, talking to different developers. And you say, well, in order to boost the construction sector of the economy so that the government can get more revenue, you should no longer be in charge of the sale of your house. Like, I, I've been thinking a lot about the just laws question in Nigeria because I believe that the lack of that fundamental question in our jurisprudence, in our public discourse, and even private discourse, has led to a lot of things. We have not asked ourselves, what should be the limit of government authority? Okay, fine. Let's say abortion is illegal in Nigeria by statute, right? Can the government order you to get an abortion? Can the government forcibly sterilize you? Is that within their rights? If they pass a statute, are they allowed to do that? Can they euthanize you for whatever reason they please? Why should they tell you that you cannot buy power that they cannot supply from somebody else? 
And there's a very interesting group of people who, I think it fizzled, were putting together a lawsuit kind of on that basis with regards to electricity. Because what they were saying is that the 2005 Electric Sector Power Recovery Act mandates that the government can regulate anywhere that there is adequate coverage. But that because Nigerians are basically getting, you know, 138 kilowatt hours per person, right, we are not adequately covered by the grid. So that NERC's mandate to regulate has not kicked in yet. NERC is supposed to regulate once there's adequate coverage, but that we need the industry to grow sufficiently that there is enough for NERC to regulate. But instead, the regulators, and it, it goes from NERC to LASBAC, the Lagos State Building Association, to, you, and you, you kind of see that regulatory creep in, in everything. And the CBN is just really the most egregious example at the moment. Right? which will determine what salary you can pay someone, or currency you can pay someone their salary in. Like, a company has money in its account and wishes to pay, compensate someone else. This is what they should do. A bank has to sever its relationship with exporters because the exporters don't promptly bring the money back. What business of theirs is any of this? I can't fathom it, Mike. Like, and I don't understand why... Even, you know, say amongst like a Twitter intelligentsia will critique all the process of the CBN Act or the chaotic nature of what they're doing, rather than what they're trying to do and how dare they. This is a major point that is replicated all through all sectors of the economy, Nigerian economy. Every point where laws are made in Nigeria, you do not see any police or you do not feel that there is a conscious and deliberate effort to consider rights, economic rights, human rights, and all the rights that are endowed on citizens and people. And this point you made is a very key one. Considering the issue of power, how IPPs, vendors, people that generate power are not allowed to sell power, there might be legal interpretations of the act that work but it has to be clear before my right is eroded i have to give you permission and it only has to be on an exceptional basis and this is not speaking specifically now especially sorry to interrupt you especially if my actions my activity my desire to make a living for myself does not create any known negative externality. Or hurt or harm either the economy or individuals. Absolutely. So I should have a right to scream and sue and see on what basis this seems to threaten my right. But for me, I think generally laws that seem to erode rights should only be made in exceptional cases and should be clearly defined to be exceptional, maybe to solve really exceptional problems. But because we are in a society where rights seem to be privileges, it becomes more difficult to push this idea, to push this notion. And then people with legal competence don't seem interested in taking up this problem because it's actually a difficult fight to, to, to have coming from our history. But I think the issue of just laws, the issue of reasonable justifications for setting laws that seem to have um, objections should be something that policymakers and um, businesses and individuals can sit down and talk about and explore. Right now, there's really nothing we can do except bring up class actions. But you have to be able to say, 
this is regulatory overreach. This is government's overstep. And what we should remember is the problem with regulatory overstep is not present. It is always, mostly always the future where this overreach can always have unintended consequences down the line. And then it is too late because already a precedent has been set. But making a case today and being able to sacrifice current convenience in whatever form, either in form of, and it will be difficult to say this, but in form of businesses jeopardizing their licenses, especially local businesses now, just so that the regulatory space is robust enough for people to be able to make innovative solutions to problems without government interfering will be a big step in resolving this problem. But, but we know today that our regulators and our policymakers, we are, there is no evidence that they consider these rights in policymaking. And when they do, there is no evidence that there are legal justifications or even rational justifications at all for some of the laws they enact. And I think coming together to make a case, to set a precedent that this should not stand because it infringes our rights today and has unintended consequences in the future will be a first step in beginning to address the problem. I think for me, what makes it even worse is that if you're going to trample on my rights, it has to be for a greater good. Absolutely. You understand? There has to be some kind of utilitarian benefit for that. I know a lot of people don't like technocracy, but I don't have a problem with it. I would happily agree to be ruled by the engineering department of MIT. And I think Timmy really emphasized this point, is that we have our rights being eroded economically, politically, but at the same time, you don't see rational policy making from government. What you see is state capture, corruption, indiscriminate, outrightly bizarre policies. You know, so there is no win, seriously. Currently, there is a bill at the National Assembly about DSTV. And, oh, they want to break the monopoly. The bill has even passed a reading at the House of Reps. And, yeah, if you want to break a monopoly, they are not doing this by creating more competition, getting more players. They want to do it by regulating pricing. That is telling multi-choice, a private business that employs Nigerians, by the way, that pay taxes in Nigeria, what to charge. How is that rational? It's a question that I keep asking and that Timmy also emphasized multiple times. So let's listen. So, like, we're talking about the social media bill, etc., whether it should be passed or not, right? Nobody, in what I'm seeing so far, has said, even if you passed it, it's unconstitutional in its face. But at this point, to me, it goes back to how do you think the Federalist Papers are actually more important, in your opinion, than the American Constitution? Because it sort of set the rationale. Exactly. Writing of the Constitution. So, I mean, recently, something happened in those states. The governor issued some directives about security and tradesmen needs to be registered or vacate the forest. And the presidential spokesperson came out almost immediately to criticize 
that decision and get this the part that made me laugh was that in that statement he made reference to the framers of our constitution and their inside and i'm like what framers what in the god's papers, name are you talking the about the papers are the backbone of the constitution because their constitution is not just an arbitrary document it is one that was considered the outcomes that were desired were the foundation of the writing of the relatively short document. How many, like, how many articles is the Constitution? Article 1, I think that's Congress. Article 2, um, what's it? That's the presidency. Article 3 is the judiciary. Then the Bill of Rights, right? And the amendments. Maybe there's Article 4, I don't know. But what I'm saying, I haven't written in a while. But my point about it is there were aims and things that were clearly impermissible. We have not really thought in the Nigerian project about where we want to go. Every Nigerian wants to be richer. Every non-spiteful Nigerian, right, wants to see the whole country richer. They just want to be richer than everybody else around them. Fine. This is a completely understandable human goal, right? Yeah. You want to be, I better pass my neighbor, but as long as you're richer than him, most people don't bear malice as to keep everyone down, right? And we are extraordinarily capable. So why is everyone down, right? And it's a structural problem with the aims and goals. I'm not even going to go into the foundation because the aims and goals of Nigeria, because the foundation, you remember I said I was reading Faye and Paula's book, uh, and it's very good and it's a great piece of history. But when one thinks forward, what are we looking forward to? Where are we attempting to get? And Nigeria's goals are extraordinarily nebulous, even more nebulous than our practice of what we're actually doing. Um, beyond the illogical, broad brushstrokes where the country's kind of rules, you know, I said like vibes and Ishala and kind of anyhowness, or uh, as some people put it on Twitter, like what's the schema? You know, we'll eventually then probably achieve like uh, a fissile thing into two separate ideological parties. People who think that the government should be able to do this thing and people who think the government should not be able to do this thing. Because I, I don't pretend, right, that there's no one... You know, I cited someone who I respect a great deal, but we don't agree about anything at all. And it's not because I think well, she's stupid or whatever. It's just like we don't agree about the limits of government power, about rules-based trade, about tariffs, about mercantilism, about whether or not power needs to be equally distributed at the same time all over the country. For instance, I would only last six weeks as president of Nigeria but I was taken out and shot or something, right? But, you know, I would probably just say, like, power companies raise prices to whatever you like, and power then would be like every other, like every other commodity in Nigeria. And it is a commodity in this country. You, how you know it is because people only have it if they can pay for it. And I said, you know, my rent and my service charge are the same. Which I still consider to be insane. But if one thinks about actually getting the thing that you want... But you do have power. So do you see what I mean? Yeah. It is, it's been commoditized. So pretending it hasn't been, 
by distorting a particular segment of the market system is one of the more regressive policies that I can think of. And it explains a lot of Nigeria's nature, red in tooth and claw, why when people get office, like they can't even sit down to like even when they try and sit down and think, what can I do to be better? Their family members will come and be like, okay, or oh, madam, you're only here for like make hay while the sun is shining. Yeah. You did, like even if you instinctually don't have any interest in particularly profiting, other people will come to you and say like you're so foolish. I remember people used to talk about um, there was a period in the 80s where there was a particular head of state, IBB, it is alleged, who used to make fun of people who didn't steal publicly. That oh you think you're better than us, you think you're over savvy, right? Um, and it almost became like, oh, well, if you just do your job a la a civil servant, right, then you're humo. You've almost demonstrated your incompetence by your inability to enrich yourself. And that does seem to be a certain paradigm that exists here. And then what that means is, well, how do you enrich yourself as a servant of the people? It is by drawing barriers up against service so that the people have to pay to cross the barrier. That's it. Like, it's not like, you know, in the Netherlands where they're really just trying to solve the problem that you have because, like, they're collecting their salary and going home at the end of the evening. Not everyone, of course, but their consequences, first of all, there, reputationally, right, and then materially for malfeasance, right? Particularly if you are caught or even suspected, you will be investigated, etc. We have no nexus between consequence, action, and accountability here in this country. And I can really say, because like if you think of who has been jailed, right, it's more likely to be like a Shia cleric or something, right? Mm. Or what's his name, Kanu, who can't speak freely and is disappeared, or you know, or someone, or the most egregious ones where it's like, oh, they'll jail an owl Mustafa. And yes, of course, they have very, very problematic things and they needed to know where their bachelor loot was. But like, in no way was that blindly justice impartially applying her skills, right? Because I mean, no, no one else in the Abadja family faced any kind of justice. Because it wasn't justice. It was punishment, you know? It was retribution. It was extortion to get what one wants. We don't even really have the illusion of justice. So, Timmy, at this point I'm tempted to ask, this was supposed to be a conversation about power. At the end of the day, it is Nigeria, and we always come back to this talking point. It's always political, it's always social, it's always... It's not really about the technical world because the knowledge is there. Whereas what I would actually say yeah. is that people pretend in Nigeria, and like I'll pivot to power on this one, people pretend that things are political that are not, that are economic. Okay. The distinction between a utility and a commodity, right, is an extraordinarily important one in power. I'm okay. going to try and use that as a lens to like, kind of talk about the things that try and kind of answer your implied question, which is, if something is not freely and readily available, and if the government cannot provide it, and we can see that they can't because they have not, right? 
then when we dimension the scale of the problem and we look at the government's resources, right, we as independent observers can see that it's not just they won't, it's not like can't cook, won't cook. They can't do it, actually. The level of resources that they would have to put behind their current regime of regulation to provide power for us is unsustainable for them. Anyone who can read a balance sheet or read the budget can see that. Unless oil is at $200 a barrel. So, remember we talked about the subjunctive machine, right? If, but, and, right? If the government could provide power but did not wish to spend the resources to do so, then we could urge them to provide the power. But, if the government does not have the resources to provide power, the only thing they have is the regulatory strength to prevent us getting it. Surely we should be able to do it ourselves. Surely what they should do is they should take their hands off the neck of Nigerian business, of Nigerian people. Yeah. What is a parent who can only admonish and exploit, but has nothing to give? I particularly, you know, I'd like to focus on the, like, say, focus on the power and gas sector of this. Even the recent activity we're seeing, you know, I said there's three transactions. We also like, if you look at AFAM, if you look at, you know, the Gerigu activity, if you look at GlobalX investments and all of that things, right? Uh, maybe even the moving of the AES barge. We're shuffling pieces around the board. There's no growth. There's just some inevitable financial consolidation happening. It's a grim thing. And all of their initiatives seem to arrive stillborn, right? Mm. Which is, you come up with, oh, get this big international OEM to come and do an Egypt for you. Okay, where did that, like, where did that go, right? And it's not COVID or even a global situation because one of the most stable things and most stable industries throughout this entire period has been the utility one. It's been surprisingly resilient. Because even though people are working from home, they're using electricity in their homes. Like, you would have done well investing in utilities as a buffer against, when I say utilities, let me say energy providers. Because some of them are utilities, but here they are not, you know. Um, the, the social and political elements of things, there are bits of it that I do not understand. I grew up in Lagos. So I, I cannot pretend, I've driven a, a, around a lot of this country, right? Like, I've regularly driven from here to Abuja, just as I can see my country, gone to the east, etc. Like, I travel for work, but I can't pretend to understand the nuances of all of Nigeria. And there always, always is a social and political part of things, because particularly you have the 80-20 problem, right? Which is, even though 80% of the people are completely rude, are ruled by their personal economics. If 20%, as we see with terrorism in the north, right, northeast, now northwest, as we see with the ethnic clashes that happen, I would say that there are economic underpinnings, right, poverty, land rights, traditional nomadism rights, livestock herding, etc., that drive these things. There are irrational encounters that happen. And it's very easy for people who say, oh, this is social and political, to point to free market people like myself and say, look, 
use economics to explain why this guy shot this guy. Like, it doesn't make any economic sense. There was no profit in it. If only that were true. Anyway. What I'm saying is, but like, you can always narrow down on the exception that attempts to disprove the rule. Mm-hmm. But again, if you stand back in Nigeria and look at not the trees, but at the forest, the solutions are actually was laughably simple. What caused the food inflation in the country? The deflationary pressures in the world economy. For many places and many people in the world, food is just getting cheaper and cheaper. Why is it getting more expensive here? The policy. Yeah. We love borders. We know. Say restriction <laughs> of like foreign exchange uh, yeah. transactions. Um, forty-one items. But it's but it's it, and it's gone beyond forty-one. Like haven't they added a bunch more? And a lot of the economics is signaling, and we send the wrong signals. True. We don't send the signal of we're open for business. We don't send the signal of invest. We sure. don't send the signal. Like, why is so much people's money in Singapore? Or Hong Kong, or whatever. Like, signaling is, is extraordinarily important. I'm not even pretending that these other places are the most policy consistent places that you can talk about because they do have politics, right? As a foreigner, you can't just go up and buy all the land in Singapore. They don't allow it, right? I'm not trying to pretend that anywhere is in Nirvana, right? Um, but when you look at the places that are successful under free market systems, and people are always like, well, you know, that's not apt for the Nigerian example. And it's like, well, I don't understand what you mean by that. Like, Thailand is ethnically diverse. Singapore is extraordinarily ethnically diverse, right? They have, like, I think, some Indian population, Malay, Chinese, right? And, Chinese, yeah. Right? Like, you know, like, they just made a country. From trading, from openness, from stability, from focusing, you know, like, it would be very interesting for me to see the Doing Business Report, uh, the next one that they do on Nigeria, because, you know, that was touted as a big success. Oh. But the entire report has been discredited. Right? Oh, really? I don't feel so. Oh, yeah, it is. There was an internal audit by the World Bank and um, Doing Business. Members of the report committee and the research group have admitted to succumbing to pressure. So, no, so, no they, they, were, they were easily lobbied. Yeah, right? Saudi Arabia. But that doesn't... Yeah. I mean, there's no question about that, but what isn't lobbied? Like, you select committee reports in the UK Parliament is lobbied. Like, if, frankly, if someone was writing something on my industry, I would be lobbying. Frankly, going on a podcast to talk about regulation, etc., is lobbying, right? You are attempting to change minds and sway opinion. Life is lobbying yeah. you know, to, to, to put forth one's best foot, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think that there should be any realistic expectation that the doing business report is absent lobbying, but it's like all of these things. Um, it's kind of like a dual flow, which is as you lobby them, Frankly, they lobby you. You say, oh, I want a better rating. And they say, well, change this thing. And you say, okay, fine, I can change it this much, etc., etc. We've gotten to incremental progress already. So, like, I remember that particular attack of, like, oh, it's not just an objective, harsh assessment. It's like, no. What they are trying to do is get it to ease the burden of doing business. 
And they are doing it because as the governments lobby them, the governments have to change their own policies. Yeah. So it's like, okay, if you change this, maybe an objective assessment would have said you get a four. I'm going to give you a five because you, the effect of the lobbying is you get five. But you were at a two before. So they pushed you up two steps and then given you a gold star as a, a reward. And again, I don't think that President Buhari woke up one day and went like, oh, I think my border policy is wrong. I think the World Bank, remember they had the meeting and said Nigeria's not ready yet. And then suddenly two weeks later, oh, the border is about to be opened. And suddenly uh, the World Bank loan is coming through, etc. There's conditionality to these things. It's about, uh, the French call it tatonement. Uh, it's called like grouping. But like, um, it's like an economic term about incremental movement towards a market equilibrium or like a good place, right? Which is like gently, 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 gently. Like, you know, you have to think about it. Nigeria is, is a real failure of signaling. Mm. It really, 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 truly is. Because it's not a signal versus the noise question. Signal versus the noise implies that the signal is, is good, but then there's just so much noise that they well, can't there, get there, there is a signal. But, but here's my note. Well, we have a signal. It's just a bad one. Whenever I pitch Nigeria, I hope that whoever I'm pitching to, whether it's for equity or a technical partnership on a new gas project or something, I hope that my partner like doesn't pay that much attention to. Like just I mean, like I hope that they read something in the Economist once in a while, look at the cover of Business Day. I hope that they have no idea what is actually going on here. Like the pitch for investment in Nigeria is a pitch for ignorance or like global spread. Mm. You know, you'd say, oh, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Put your eggs in one small basket that's on the hanging off a balcony, <laughs> right? <laughs> with, with high winds. And but like maybe one day that egg will be, you know, when your eggs are in your fridge, etc., chilling, you know, like maybe something happens to your fridge, so there's just one. But then when you go there, that egg is probably not there. Because this is a really, 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 really tough place to do business. And because you have to focus on why it's so difficult to do business here because of power. And then after a while, you learn a lot about it. You learn a lot about structuring projects. I learned a lot about the financing of it and how it works. But it is one of those areas where the government's intervention is egregious. There is no rational basis for it. It doesn't save them money, right? You know, you look and you say, CBN to give 196 billion naira for the power sector, right? Then another one, gas pricing in dollars for review to cut costs of gas. Disco reprieve, etc. Like, I understand why the oil sector has not been substantially reviewed. There's mountains of money there for everyone from let me be honest from napkins determining who the contract goes to to NFPC share to the joint venture arrangements to even the IOC is using their cost plus rationale where you find that there's an offshore oil now here in Nigeria that pays all the headquarter costs in Italy right you know like even though it's a global company the cost before profits 
is calculated HQ inflate. Right? Like I understand the oil and gas nexus. It makes a great deal of sense and it's very rational. If you don't think it's rational, you're not paying attention. Power, even gas to an extent, but power doesn't make sense because it's not making anybody any money. And that's why I feel that the regulation of power in this country is stupid. Because, you know, there's, there's this myth. Oh, the diesel importer. The, the diesel jet importers. Like, I, I, can't, I everyone from my driver to my granny has said that to me. And I'm always trying to explain to them that that makes no sense. Unless they are the cleverest group of oligarchs that I have ever encountered in fact or fiction. They are not the reason. On the question of Nigeria, which was where Timmy sort of closed out his, should I say, argument or... Musings. Musings. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's a fundamental question. We always talk about nation building, but what are we trying to do as a country? I know there are so many talking points that people return to. Oh, restructuring, decentralized, but Project Nigeria, what is it? And what is it trying to do? So, how do you define your citizenship as a Nigerian? Other than amalgamation, independence from the colonial powers 60 years ago, what is our common ethos? Okay, and besides even the philosophical implications of that, the project of nation building itself, how we write our laws, how we regulate, how we relate, the kinds of things that get done, okay, it is aiming for what? You know, precisely. And given the state of the country currently, you can visibly see that things are rapidly degenerating and threatens to unravel. It's a question that actually begs itself. What is Nigeria? What is it trying to be? What should it be? Our citizenship is a negative assumption rather than a positive assertion. Mm. Like, nobody wants to be a Nigerian citizen. Buhari's not even signed the certificate even if you, for the very few people who do. It's not an aspirational thing, even for the people who are born into it. It's not necessarily a thing of particular pride. What is the positive assumption that propels Nigeria? I cannot think what it is. So, it's so pernicious for me. The idea that criticism or context or advice or counsel is enmity has ruined Nigeria and robbed it of its potential. Mm. People talk about the marketplace of ideas, right? There is no such thing here. If you wish to work with government, you must kowtow to whatever narrow-minded view or ill-informed opinion the particular government official has. You must not step out of line. You must not say anything, as they say, 
talk out of turn, someone said to me recently, right? And I was like, what does that mean? If you wish to debate me, and you wish to vanquish me in this debate, and it happens all the time, right? Where, like, a younger or elder person who just knows more intimately about the subject than I do is like, you're wrong, and this is why. This is why I'm right. I don't understand why when one gets to the height of governor, frankly, of local government association chairman, it suddenly becomes wrong to be a sin, to be proven to be wrong. Like, what's wrong with being wrong? Particularly, you know, when you get to the point where you have a lot of executive authority, you can't know everything. You need to have people come to tell you. I'm not even saying don't use your executive authority to do what you wish, but take information in. And then if you decide, as it seems happens often in the villa, right, which is that this is the thing that we should do, but I don't want to do it. I want to do this instead. Like, nobody can stop you. You were elected, or whatever, right? Or appointed, or how you got to your grand position that is supported by a statute. But you need to be able to assimilate information that does not immediately resonate with you. I would say this, which is the thing that travels down in Nigerian society. So when I moved back to Nigeria, I got allergies to chili pepper. When I go to restaurants, I'll ask them, does this thing have any chili pepper in it at all? I'm not asking you, is it spicy? I'm asking you if it has any chili pepper in it at all. What I noticed, and it's the funniest thing, Nigerian waiters, or serving staff, waitresses, or waiters, like barmen, whatever, seem to be trained to not intellectually answer the question you've asked them, they look at my face because they want to know what answer do I want to hear. Which is always the most bizarre thing in the world to me. You're not trying to think through the facts of the case. You're trying to please whoever is perceived as the organ. Even if it involves lying to them. You seem to be describing something that functions like a collective psyche of sorts. Do you have any theories at all as to how we got here? I mean, what you were describing earlier, one of the most pernicious demonstrations of that that I've seen is that people who hold different views privately will publicly go on record to say idiotic things. And it's like, I saw you at the pizzeria or Delhi's just the other week. And we were talking, and you're a perfectly normal, intelligent person. What the, what the hell is going on? Perhaps because we adopted this kind of presidential central system, because it's what made sense under militaristic rule, there's a kind of like no descent down the chain of command idea, which, for instance, if you look at the UK, remember, we used to have a part of it. We used to have a prime minister. Cabinet rule, there's wide consensus and debate. We don't seem to have ever really come to that formulation in Nigeria. And you know how it is, like I have colleagues, I have fellow directors, I have partners, because I recognize I can't do it all myself. The buck cannot stop, in a sense, always with one person. 
particularly, you know, we talked about the Nigerian project and about how it has to be a project, something that we are trying to build and that evolves. The Civil War showed us that. It's not a given that Nigeria exists. As I said, Fola and Fee's book shows us that. It's not a given. There's no... Inevitability. Just, I mean, it's not yeah. like, oh, Chile, well, there's this mountain range that just runs up the length and breadth of South America, and really, it would just be impractical to have any different arrangement. Have, like, any different arrangement. Like, there's a geographic barrier, right? Even the United Kingdom, when you think about it, right? England and Scotland were not unified until what? Like, the, like 1804 or so? When was the Act of Union? No, it must have been earlier than that. 1704. What I'm saying is, like, even on that one small island, right? There were two different countries for longer than they'd been the same one, right? Even when the crowns were united in one person, they remained two different countries for centuries. With different peers, with different parliaments. So, I guess my question is always like, what is the essence of the Nigerian experiment? What are we trying to do? In no way am I trying to advocate for some sort of secessionist nonsense or whatever. Like, Nigeria exists and there's a certain centrifugal force and gravity to it existing. And, you know, I have projects in the South-South, I have projects in the North-Central. You know, my father's family are Northerners and my mother's family are old, old Lagos. Like, I'm not saying that there's no rationale to Nigeria. But where are we trying to, if this is a ship, where are we trying to take it? And, you know, the power example is, I always say that's the perfect one. Because it's like, is the idea that if all Nigerians can't have power, none can. That seems to be the rationale behind the price controls that have constrained and the government control that have constrained the industry. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to the show on any of your favorite podcast vendors. That may be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or any of the rest. Don't forget to rate us on your platform. It helps others find the show. Or you can just listen or download on our website, www.ideasuntrapped.com.